This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 14th of October 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Now, coming up on today's programme, I'm really looking forward to having a leaf through the global papers with the author, academic, teacher, lecturer, journalist and all-round great bloke, David Badanis. Then we celebrate Bookshop Day. Meryl Halls, the Managing Director of the Booksellers Association, joins us on the show to tell us more about today's celebration of bookshops and the people that run them. First, though... Here's the news. The Israeli military has notified residents of the northern Gaza Strip that they can travel safely to the southern half between 10 and 4pm today and that there will be no attacks during those hours. US President Joe Biden said consultations are underway with regional governments on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza as trapped Palestinians endured a power blackout and shortages of food and water amid fierce Israeli bombing in retaliation for the attack by Hamas on Israel last Saturday. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese made a last-ditch appeal today for his fellow Australians to back a referendum to recognise Indigenous people in the Constitution as the country began voting to decide on the historic measure. A poll released this morning indicated the no vote is likely to succeed despite a late lift in support for yes. Academics and human rights advocates fear a win for the no camp could set back reconciliation efforts by years. And the European Union's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, said today his message to Chinese officials on a Beijing visit is that Brussels takes China seriously and expects the same in return on geopolitical issues and trade. The EU and China plan a summit by the end of the year, with Borrell's visit and those of a number of other top EU officials in recent months paving the way. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. Now, my guest today is David Badanis. Uh, good morning to you, David. Good morning. Uh, we often have you in on Monocle Radio uh, to talk about things, but it's normally space. Why do we get you in to talk about space? I, I think it's because I'm fairly tall and I'm closer to outer space than most human <laughs> beings we've met. Uh, but you are the string of things that I described in our introduction. I mean, it's quite hard to pin down exactly what you do. It's sort of a, a, evasive maneuvers have carried me very well through life. Uh, uh, my parents had decided to have kids. Uh, they took the biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply, not ironically, but literally. So there was a daughter and 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 then the prince. Um, so at, at times I tried to evade my throndom. Well, you you do it successfully, I would say. Uh, David, primarily, though, you are an author. How many books have you written? Uh, I, I've written about uh, a bit more than a dozen, uh, a number, maybe two dozen. Many of them are on my shelf. I think about 10 have been published. Some of the, One actually made a publisher retire. Another definitely made my agent retire. <laughs> uh, one, though, at least one, in fact, that I'm sure many more, uh, has been a huge bestseller. And this is your most recent one. Tell us about The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Turned 
and mean. I was delighted uh, in writing that book, and I recommend to any uh, proto-writers uh, out here to persevere. I had the idea for years and years, tried it in different directions without success. But I finally nailed it and realized what it is. We know you can rise to the top by being a jerk. You see that in politics and business and stuff. We definitely know that bullying and yelling and just being an all-around bad guy or bad woman, works. You terrify people and you get things done. We also know that being too soft, that, that generally a nice person tends to lose. If you're really polite and agree to everybody and stuff, you get walked over. You become a doormat. The question is, is there a path in between? Is there a way that you can rise up, and not just as a quiet academic in the corner, but hard things, international politics, uh, uh, medicine, uh, legal firms, you know, big, tough, competitive fields, um, navigating a line where you're, I suppose, what people used to call fair but firm. Mm, mm. Well, of course, that's incredibly relevant right now when we look to the Middle East. Totally, 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 totally. And there's temptations to, uh, uh, under stress, to go to extreme positions. In times of a war, the undecideds in political groups uh, go down to zero. Because you, whether you wish to uh, uh, make a decision or not, you're sort of forced to by your opponents. I've been writing recently uh, in a manuscript that will come out next year, about Indian partition in 1947. And a great number of people thought of themselves as Bengalis. They didn't think of themselves as Muslim or Hindu, or they were definitely Punjabis rather than... They knew that, yeah, their parents may have been Sikh, but they had these syncretic religious views and stuff. But when fighting began, even if you want to say, hey, cool it, guys, I'm, I'm open to all sides. If somebody treats you one way, that becomes your identity. Mm, well, from 47 to 48, of course, which is the root of this current crisis uh, between uh, uh, Hamas and Israel, uh, huge amounts of coverage. I mean, this is the top story in every single newspaper in the world. Uh, it, it's uh, all over the internet, everywhere. And everybody has an opinion, uh, which seems to me extraordinary because most of us have never been there. We possibly don't understand the politics properly. Uh, but there's so much shouting. Yes, I, I think it's because of pressure and being at a decision point. Do you know if you're the passenger in a car, you pay almost no attention to where you're going. And then the driver, uh, if they don't have a good GPS system, says, Oi, do we turn left or we turn right? And suddenly you have to make a decision. You can't say, oh, I don't know. Hey, I'm, I'm really, I'm just cool with travel. And say, you can't be cool with travel. There's a large cement block in front of us. You have to turn left or you have to turn right. And so you have to make a quick decision. So that's why people need to make these uh, decisions. You notice it. I know this sounds trivial, but it's not actually trivial. If you look at uh, the sandwich bar at, at uh, Marks and Spencer's at lunchtime, people stand there and they look, do I want this or do I want that? In a sense, you're actually quite cautious about uh, the foods you're going to eat. You don't want something that's off. You don't want something that's disagreeable and stuff. Um, you'll pay a premium to go to a store where you trust it. And at the moment of decision point, they talk about it in auction theory and all sorts of stuff. At the moment of decision point, everything has to come in and you have to make a decision. Now, sadly, with Mr. Musk and other fine people taking care of our media, many people are making decisions on poor information. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and so much information about this is out there. Just having a, a scroll through the global papers, uh, having a look, for instance, at uh, Deutsche Welle in, in Germany. This is talking about uh, how Jewish communities in the country are very afraid. Of course, this has all sorts of <coughs> echoes of the Holocaust and people are very frightened. Here in Britain, you're seeing some Jewish schools closed down because they're wary of their uh, uh, pupils' safety and so on. Um and uh, this piece really, really goes into this. But, of course, we know that there is another side to this. Uh, yes. 
And it's uh, it's incredibly, uh, um, I don't want to say tempting because that suggests it's wrong, but it's a natural human reflex to be highly aware of how people like you are being harmed. Uh, you have to defend yourself. And the problem is uh, uh, media can, um, can shift it into one direction or another. Uh, a famous thing here, so clearly Hamas wants to feel that the word Gaza is the same as the word Hamas that Gaza, uh, Hamas is Gaza, and, and vice versa. The idea of separating this political leadership from the ordinary people living there is, uh, would be a masterpiece of diplomacy, um, but it's very hard to do in times of tension. Absolutely. I mean, Hamas is not Gaza. I mean, not everybody that lives in Gaza votes for Hamas, believes in what Hamas has done. And absolutely in Israel, that's the case too. Not everybody there is a, a supporter of Netanyahu's government. Uh, just having a look at this next story, this is from um, the South China Morning Post. It's talking about uh, who Malaysia supports in this in this war. To Israel and the West, says the headline, Hamas are terrorists. But for Malaysia, Malaysia's long welcomed the Palestinian militant group with open arms, hosting its leaders and even maintaining an unofficial embassy for Hamas. And this is just very, very interesting looking uh, at, at the support here uh, from, from Malaysia. And of course, again, picking up, it, it, it tells us a lot about social media there in, in the country too. Uh, yeah, uh, again, it's easy for us to use these terms. That's how I would think about it. Oh, Malaysia feels this. But of course, Malaysia is a really big country. And uh, I've known some Malaysian families, and they're very good at arguing uh, among themselves, as all humans are around the world. <clears throat> so it'd be easy to say, wow, everybody there has this very narrow-minded uh, prejudice or is unconcerned with uh, 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 um, those terrible things that happened uh, of uh, um, uh, individuals being kidnapped or uh, uh, totally innocent women being uh, targeted. But of course, the individuals in Malaysia are cover a huge range, and the distortions of the media can slide people into a certain view. Mm. Uh, having a look at ABC, this is looking at the um, uh, reaction from uh, African countries, uh, which I think is, is very, very interesting. Mostly they're calling for peace on both sides. Uh, uh, I suppose that that's the, the default position. I, I think it circles back to what you said earlier. Everybody uh, feels they need to have a, a strong view, um, uh, even if it's not based on, on much knowledge. So there's, uh, there's some groups in the world to whom the Middle East is sort of orthogonal. It's not the focus of interest. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the resonances like, for Britain or Germany and, and stuff. So some of the Far East, many people there will... Uh, think of it on the periphery of their attention rather than the centre of their attention. Mm, absolutely. Now, of course, Israel's greatest ally is the US and Joe Biden has been very, very firm about how the country stands steadfastly behind Israel. But it's hard to see exactly what the US can do at the moment because it cannot pass any legislation. Uh, we're talking here, of course, of the uh, US Speaker of the House. There isn't one right now. Uh, correct. The U.S. is not speaking with a voice which makes people around the world think we need more of American-style democracy. Uh, some of the uh, extremists in the Republican Party, or the relative extremists, they wanted the vote in the last election to be close. They wanted the idea that the Republicans have a majority, but a very small majority. If there was a large majority, uh, the McCarthy could, would still be Speaker. He would um, say, well, the majority of Republicans have a certain view. But if the majority is very close and you're dependent on the small group that's on the edge. You have that whenever there's a coalition government in, in parliaments. The U.S. often doesn't have that problem. But now, with uh, especially with social media, the main uh, parties, they can't enforce discipline. They used to be able to say, oi, 
if you um, uh, from Florida are not following what the uh, leadership in the House wants, we're not going to give you money. Now the uh, young man from Florida, the congressman, can say, I don't care. I have my own source of income. Yeah. So where we are now is, of course, we know that Scalise failed in his bid to be Speaker. Uh, House Republicans have nominated Jim Jordan. Of course, he has Donald Trump's backing. Uh, But uh, Jordan is by no means uh, clearing all the hurdles yet. In fact, it's unlikely that he will. Sure. The political parties today are are, are a leftover of decisions that were made uh, generations before. Uh, Very few people would create a single group, say in Britain, um, uh, and call it a single party. So the Conservative Party has several different groups in it. The Labour Party has several different groups. Historically, they came, they started, and then they've merged in a different direction. They're still within this outer wrapping of a single party. Mm. Nobody would take, um, I don't know, uh, moderately conservative uh, uh, suburban business people and uh, and extremely right-wing, uh, yelling uh, um, uh, populists and put them together from scratch today in a party. But historically, uh, several groups developed but they happened to they happened to be with the umbrella of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't know if you saw that Kevin Phillips passed away. He was the one who, uh, uh, under uh, Nixon, uh, two generations ago, said the Republicans can have a Southern strategy, switch the uh, uh, racism of the uh, Democratic Party, which in the 1950s and uh, even early 60s, uh, the core of the Democratic Party in the South were, were white racists, and switch that to the Republicans. Mm. You'll have a, a strong and deep um, uh, basis. Yeah. And of course, all of this speaker stuff, we go back once again to this this horrible kind of shouting match of social media. And there's another example that just popped up. This was yesterday. It was reported yesterday in The Times. A library in West Yorkshire had its book collection decimated. So what happened was they were having a fundraising jumble sale and they decided that the books they no longer needed, they'd put on a special table and you could fill a bag with books and it would cost you one pound. This then goes on Facebook and it's completely subverted. The message just is like Chinese whispers and by the end, people are thinking that they can go to the library, fill a bag with anything they like and it will cost them a pound. Uh, And it it just became an absolute bun fight and people realised they were being told, no, no, that's not the case, it's that table and people just carried on. Uh, That's actually one of the the sad things about human beings. Almost any one of those individuals, if you took them to the side later in a church or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever, or a football club uh, in Yorkshire, and said, oi, what were you doing? They'd say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I got carried away. I was acting in a frenzy. And sadly, human beings can act in a frenzy. When you're with that group, you're bonded in thinking of the other people who are storming in with you doing it. It's not in quiet moments of reflection that one does this. And sadly, many of our actions are encouraged by social media to be these zones of uh, a, a frenzy, which sadly can be satisfying when you're inside it. But it's on quiet reflection later, you think, what was I doing? Yeah, well, awful news for the library. But all is not lost for the world of books because today is Bookshop Day. Hooray. It's a celebration of all bookshops and booksellers, from the small independent shops to the likes of Waterstones and Blackwells. This year's theme is Bookshops Bringing People Together, highlighting the the role of bookshops as community hubs as well as retail spaces. Well, joining me now is Meryl Halls, who's the Managing Director of the Booksellers Association. Meryl, it's lovely to have you back on the programme. Good morning to you. Lovely to be back. Good morning to you. Uh, Tell us now about Bookshop Day. Why is Bookshop Day necessary and what is it? Bookshop Day is necessary because I, I was delighted to hear your other guest giving a big, a big hurrah there when you said it was Bookshop Day. I think Bookshop Day, it's the 10th year that we've we've run the campaign. 
Um, and we want to really draw attention, really positive attention to the wonderful role that bookshops play on their high streets, whether it's local waterstones or foils or your local independent, because they very often create, um, <clears throat> they're more than the sum of their parts because they create um, joy. People love to go in. It creates a sense of community. Um, they're very often in, engaged with local schools and they bring authors. They create a cultural space inside their bookshop very often. They'll often link up with their local libraries. That was a, that's quite a tale about the library <laughs> you just told. Um, and I thought you were going to say they'd been stormed in, in a much worse way, but um, that was a slightly bizarre story. Um, and they, they are, they're, they're community hubs, as you say. And I think what we want to do is shine a light, tell consumers, tell book lovers, to, to get down to their local bookshop, to, to buy online from a high street bookseller. And rather than just default, I think it's very tempting in our world, um, less so maybe post-pandemic, to, to default to an online purchase. But actually the experience of being in a bookshop is so multifaceted and, and so satisfying because you have a conversation with a real person who cares about what you're reading and will will be a passionate advocate of something that they have read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think all of that, all of that as a package we want to celebrate. Mm. And just uh, today, there are a number of events taking place a, a, a around the country. There are. We've got lots of um, lots of Waterstones uh, stores have got um, authors in. So we've got uh, Miriam Margulies in Waterstones in Liverpool. Um, we've got Jerry Hallowell Horner in Waterstones in Manchester. We've got a fantastic um, children's bookshop in Brixton, which has got a whole range of um, authors in for, for an event. Um, and, and really all over the country, we've got um, Richard Armitage. I can't, I mean, the list is far too long to go through, but it's it's a real, you know, it's a, the day itself gives a, it's an engine and, and the bookshops are so brilliant at creating events around that engine. So um, it's, yeah, check out your local bookshop. Um, there's a website um, for Bookshop Day, so go there and see what's on with your bookshop locally. Mm, absolutely. And of course, if people can't get out of the house for, for whatever reason, uh, you can still buy online. But this brings us to Amazon and the evils of the, the big corporates. But there is an alternative, and that's bookshop.org. There is an alternative. And bookshop.org is a uh, mission-led online book selling platform, which is intended to support independent bookshops. I mean, it's, it's also, as far as we're concerned, it's also great if you shop on uh, Waterstones or Foils online. But bookshop.org is uh, what we what they call a B Corp. So it has a mission to deliver benefit to independent bookshops. And it came during the pandemic. It arrived. Uh, they'd been going for six months in the United States, delivering great benefit to the independent sector there. And they arrived in November 2020. And we've got about 600 independents who use that. And there's they, they earn money from the sale that you purchase. It's, it's based on the... Um, the principle of lists, so it's recommendations. Again, it's it's getting right to the heart of what the, the booksellers do best, which is to recommend something that they're passionate about. It's just well worth a visit. And certainly if you if you if you have to buy online, which lots of people do, so lots of people don't have a bookshop near them, it's a great alternative to Amazon. And we're really keen to um make sure that everyone knows that that alternative exists on in addition to Waterstones mm. and, and Smith and, and Foils. And of course you you get lots of pop-up bookshops at uh literary festivals and this mm. is the the season of literary festivals. I'm mid-Cheltenham at the moment. Oh. Uh, we've got Cambridge coming up. We've got Margate next weekend. Uh, so many, uh, uh, and I think Wimbledon is coming up too. So, so many big festivals coming up. Those two, of course, drive the engine of bookselling, don't they? They do. And it's, I mean, again, it, they provide the same sort of experience. You go and you're with like-minded people. You might get to hear an author that you'd 
never heard of. And, and it can be life changing when you hear someone talk passionately about their subject. And I think the literary festivals are, it's tough for them now. You know, there's an awful lot of um, other activity going on. It can be hard to get audiences, but the big ones are, they deliver incredible, um, again, those community hubs. Uh, and these, they, they can sell a lot of books. Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much, Meryl. So people can go to the website and just see if there's something on in their area today uh, and join in with Bookshop Day. Absolutely. And have happy Bookshop Day. Buy lots of books. Buy lots of books. Meryl Halls, Managing Director of the Booksellers Association. Many thanks indeed. David, festivals. I mean, with all of your books, you must have uh, done many appearances at the book festivals. What you guys were saying was really true. I, I've taken my uh, my children when they were younger to some of the festivals, and they loved seeing the authors pop into existence. And also very, very much what your, uh, uh, what your guest was saying. You find out things that you only vaguely knew about, but you see the person and you see them in real life and you see them in 3D. You can see how they're talking. You can see how they're sitting when they're listening. It's not the sleek, smooth persona of a computer screen. And that's wonderful. Um, uh, I, I remember my daughter at one point uh, meeting the woman, um, I forget her name, um, who, uh, who designed, who's an uh, autistic uh, uh, adult woman who designs uh, animal slaughterhouses and things like that. Um, and she was just incredibly thoughtful. Uh, and in, uh, in the interviewer, in the interview, spoke as a full three-dimensional person. She described when she was young wanting contact but, not, but being fearful of contact. And this woman um, uh, designed a machine uh, as a teenager with metal arms but soft cushions inside that could hug her. And that spoke poignantly to my daughter and also to the hundreds of other people in the audience who might not have been aware of this and became really interested in her book. Absolutely fascinating. Now, one of your books that, that I'm interested to delve a little bit more into is uh, one called Passionate Minds, The Great Enlightenment Love Affair, because it's about a woman uh, uh, of whom I know very, very little, Emily du Chatelet. Uh, you say she is the woman who taught Voltaire most of what he knew. Yes, she taught Voltaire most of what he knew in philosophy and in bed. She was a multifaceted, talented woman. Uh, Voltaire deferred to her. She was uh, quicker witted than him and she was uh, sharper. Uh, and for about 10, 15 years, they had a wonderful relationship. The only uh, problem they had is occasionally her husband would come visit. And that was very disappointing for her because her husband and Voltaire got on really well. They would have <laughs> nice walks in the countryside. Voltaire had an ability to get on with everybody because he would find out something that they had in common that they both cared about. So instead of like gossiping about the equivalent of today's, um, I don't know, latest news or latest films in airports, he would find something that they really cared about. I, I first learned about uh, this woman, Emily Duchatelet. I was writing about Albert Einstein, of all people. And in his equation equals mc squared, the squared, which Einstein wrote about in the 20th century, came from the works of this woman in the 18th century. And I thought, how could a woman, in a time of great discrimination against women, and in an early era in science, come up with an idea that Albert Einstein himself used 200 years later? So I did what many writers did. And I thought, that's a great idea, and did nothing whatsoever about it. But about five, ten years later, I was browsing in the basement stacks of the University of London Science Library, and I found off in the corner a dusty shelf in the corner, which had access to a, 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 ref, a longer reference to her. And I thought, this is great. This is like a Dan Brown novel, and it's actually true. So I traced it out, and she had a heck of a life. 
She certainly did. Uh, and one of the things, of course, that happens to women like that who have love affairs with greatly famous men is that they often get blamed for things. It's how misogyny works, isn't it? It's just, you, 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 you like the great man, he's done something wrong, it's clearly her fault. Well, we're seeing that here, and maybe it was her fault, we don't know, but the newspapers today are reporting that Carrie Johnson, who is the wife of the former Prime Minister uh, here in Britain, Boris Johnson, was in charge during COVID. Now, apparently, uh, the head of the civil service has said that the government looked like a terrible, tragic joke. And this comes from WhatsApp messages, which had been disclosed by the COVID-19 inquiry. I think what happens there is when uh, uh, people flail and they can't find a cause for something, they desperately want to find a cause. So the cause might be the protocols of the elders of Zion. Or the cause might be Dominic Cummings, or the cause might be uh, Rupert Murdoch. Whatever it is, you you hunt for a cause. And uh, clearly, Britain had a great difficulties during uh, the COVID era, and not everybody was a fine supporter of Boris Johnson, uh, recognizing the true calmness and magisterial uh, <laughs> uh, overall arching intelligence that he showed. Um, so it was tempting to blame somebody. Many people blame Dominic Cummings. Sadly, many people would blame uh, Carrie Johnson. All those people had uh, some input to uh, to Boris Johnson, but anybody who's uh, dealt with Boris Johnson or has been a subject to the uh, kingdom that he ruled for uh, for a while will know that Boris Johnson makes his own decisions yes. or his non-decisions. Yeah. Uh, the only person that hasn't really been blamed is Dylan, their dog. <laughs> uh, but Joe Biden's dog is in trouble. So for the second time in Joe Biden's life at the White House, he's had to send a German shepherd away. So this is his dog, Commander, who's been sent away to an undisclosed location for biting at least 11 people. I think the name, you know, we talk about nominative determinism. <laughs> Suppose the dog was named Fluffy. Suppose the dog was like, it grew up a little. Hello, Fluffy. Fluffy would be embarrassed and humiliated if, if we would see like a civil, uh, a Secret Service guy and would go up in the corner and like and cower because it's like, you're not going to call me Fluffy too, are you? <laughs> but Commander? Having just said that, my dog Bella has just walked in behind the glass. Tell me about Bella. <laughs> she's a Springer Spaniel. She's delightful and she's just behind the glass. They've, they've come to pick me up, actually, to take me off to Cheltenham uh, again, where I'll be speaking to a vet, uh, Noel Fitzpatrick, who's, been, who's known as the super vet. And he sort of adds all sorts of prostheses to animals and helps them do things. But it, it, a kind of making like an electronic dog, if you like. What a kind <laughs> thing to do for our, our animals. A, a sign of civilization is that you're considerate and generous to creatures that you don't have to be. Yeah. Well, but in your book, The Electric Universe, you you talk about how nobody's ever actually patted a dog. I know. It's kind of sad. Boy, have I gotten feedback from dog lovers. It turns out if you put, and I've had dogs, which I've loved, you put your hand on the dog and you go, who's a cute little woogie woogie? And you do that sort of thing as you do. You think your hand is touching the dog. It isn't. There's electrons on the surface of your hand, and they produce this electromagnetic field, which is very powerful. And there's electrons on the dog's skin or fur or whatever, and they come out, and they get really, really, really close to the electrons on your hand, but they don't touch. They can't touch. The electromagnetic field is too strong. They push back against each other. You feel you're touching, but you're never. Indeed, if you think about it, you've never hugged a lover or a child. You've never actually sat in a chair. As I am sitting here in, in, uh, in our monocle studio, my posterior is being suspended above the chair by an invisible electromagnetic field. That's extraordinary. Uh, many people have commented, yes, and can I, can I observe? It's not just my posterior. 
But I can feel my posterior very firmly on the chair. Exactly, because the electromagnetic fields from the chair are pushing really closely to everybody's posterior. In fact, indeed, it's not just the people in the studio. If you're sitting, standing, or walking on planet Earth, the reason why is it that you don't fall through to the center of the uh, planet? It's because the um, if you're standing in your shoes on the pavement, uh, your shoes are hovering a little. When I say a little, I mean a really, 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 really small amount above the floor. Indeed, your feet are hovering just a little above your socks. You are touching nothing. That's so exciting. John Donne is a beautiful poet, but he was wrong. Every man is an island. <laughs> just before we go, I want to have a, a nod to something that's going on around the corner, and that's, of course, the Freeze Art Fair. Uh, and uh, people who read our Monocle Minute, the weekend edition, there's always a wonderful column by our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And today he is writing about Freeze, but talking about sort of, I mean, how, how it does bring people together, kind of along the themes that we've been speaking about today. And I know that... Um, there's a, a recent uh, Ben Kingsley film out. It's all about Dali. Uh, it's something you've seen, I think, and we're quite keen to discuss. Yes. So Salvador Dali, George Orwell had a great line about him. He said, Salvador Dali was a genius from his wrist down. What he meant was many of his thoughts and his personality could be objectionable, but his skill with his hands was magnificent. And Dali's important in, um, in, in the modern era because many people know of him who don't know of many other artists because some of his art w w was very interesting and skilled, but he made a performance of his own life. So you think, oh, I have a Dolly print on the wall or a Dolly uh, picture, and somehow you're associated with the person. So many of the uh, famous British artists in recent eras, they need to make something known about themselves. Uh, and so if I uh, wish to acquire it, I feel that I have an aspect of that person. It's sort of like uh, eating the heart of an animal. Uh, you feel I'm getting the, the, the strength from the heart of that animal. People will go to the Freeze Art Fair, and there's some really cool stuff there. It's lovely to see fresh ideas uh, spurting out, but they especially like it if they could associate uh, their personality with the personality of the artist. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's on. It's on all weekend. It's on. London is absolutely buzzing with it. Isn't it a lovely atmosphere? I, I, I think this is wonderful, and I think it's really important that Mr. Sunak made a decision that people more than 112 miles from London should walk here if they want to appreciate it. <laughs> uh, David Badanis, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer and our studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. Uh, my guest was David Badanis, also Meryl Halls. And don't forget, it is Bookshop Day. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.